Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. My name is Sanjay Merchant. I'm a teaching pastor here. And if we haven't met, the reason is I'm not here every week. I'm not just a teaching pastor here. I'm a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And often people ask, well, okay, uh, how does that connection work? I've known Scott for 23 years. He was a youth pastor on Orcas Island 23 years ago up there in the Puget Sound. And my wife's family is from Orcas Island. And so um, her family and the Harrises have known each other for decades and are good friends and have been in fellowship for a very long time. So I really had the pleasure of meeting Scott a long time ago. Uh, I was a seminarian at the time and we were at similar stages, him starting ministry and me, me starting my academic ministry. And, um, and we've been in fellowship for some time. And so uh, that's why I'm here. And I continue to fellowship with Scott and with the teaching team here. I'm also part of the Biblical Foundation Ministry which is a really awesome ministry. Many of you are part of that. We're going through the book of Matthew right now, and we get to fellowship around specific teaching on books of the Bible and and other topics. And so I got to talk last night. Um, And I get to meet with the teaching pastors every Monday, which is really awesome because it's a time of fellowship. It's not just a time of of housekeeping and and of... um, um, you know, that, that, that sort of um, planning the sermon series and things like that. It's really a time where iron sharpens iron. So I'm usually far away, but so many times uh, behind the scenes, I'm in connection with the pastors here, and it's been a huge blessing. So it's always nice to come here. This is what we're doing in this series now. We're starting a new series on the life of David, the great king of Israel. And this will take us very briskly through First and Second Samuel. It's really important to understand what God has revealed about this person, David, for a couple reasons. No single person is mentioned more times by name in the Bible than David. No single person has more continuous chapters develop, uh, devoted to his life than King David. He is very central to the message of the Bible and particularly the history of Israel and the arc of his life, his rise, And unfortunately, to some degree, his fall, although he continues to be a man after God's own heart, uh, mirrors the rise and fall of Israel, really helps us understand the Bible. We are a Bible church, and the center of our worship here is really understanding, internalizing the scriptures, not just merely as an academic task, not merely to just inform our minds, but to renew our hearts. This is an act of worship. So we really take teaching the Bible very seriously. So what I wanna do today is overview just like we were in worship, the, uh, the worship, we saw ourselves sort of flying over a forest. I don't know if you're paying attention. As you're looking, that's a perfect metaphor. That's what we want to do. Just sort of fly over the forest of David's life. And then in, in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to step into, step by step, the various elements of David's life. We're going to understand it as an act of devotion to God. And also, by the Spirit, we're going to draw out certain implications, and hopefully we can continue to deepen our fellowship and deepen our knowledge of Jesus Christ and be renewed in these ways. That's the purpose of all of this. So that's what we're going to do, okay? If you need a Bible, if you like to have a Bible in your hand, raise your hand. The ushers have Bibles for us. If not, you can open up your your Bible apps. And again, we'll be in 1 Samuel, and I'll mention something from 2 Samuel and, and Psalms but you can be ready with that as soon as you get a Bible. All right. The life of David. In order to understand the life and significance of David, it's really important to have a big picture 
of the history of Israel. And again, this is a very quick flyover. Who is Israel? What is Israel? What's its importance? The Bible is largely about this nation, this holy nation that God has chosen. We first encounter the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. Before that, in the book of Genesis, we encounter God as the creator of all things, this transcendent, powerful, perfectly holy creator and lover of the world. And then we find that humanity falls and we find ourselves separated from God in sin and confusion. And in the book of, uh, uh, at the end of the book of Genesis, God introduces himself to Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob as their personal God, as if he's one God among many. Then there's a bit of silence and we encounter the descendants of Jacob as a nation of slaves in Israel, or sorry, in Egypt in the book of Exodus. So their descendants is a, are now a great nation and they're in slavery. There's been some silence and God speaks again. After many years, he tells Moses and his brother Aaron to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He's remembered Israel and is now fulfilling his promises to Israel that he made to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so this is where we first encounter Israel. Very powerful story in the book of Exodus. We've talked about it here in a number of teaching series. So I won't go through all of the details, but I'm hoping that we have the gist of this story. What happens is Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And just paraphrasing, not quoting exactly, Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? Again, paraphrasing, look at the pyramids. Look at the strength of the gods of Egypt. I've never heard of Yahweh. Who do you say he is? He's, he's the God of a nation of slaves? Doesn't sound like a very powerful God to me. I don't think I care what Yahweh wants. No, I will not let you go. Well, systematically, step by step with a series of plagues, God brings Egypt to its knees, the most powerful nation on the planet, brings them to their knees, and miraculously delivers Israel from Egyptian captivity. They pass through the Red Sea into the Sinai, where God then gives them his law. Okay, very powerful and important story. This is the birth of the nation of Israel. And it says in Exodus that the rest of the nations quaked in fear. The reason being is, if Yahweh can do this to the gods of Egypt, we don't stand a chance. Who is this God? The God of the whole universe, the one and only true God has presented himself as if he's the God of this very humble nation. But in fact, we're going to see systematically through the history of the Old Testament that one God after another is going to fall until there are none left and only one is left remaining. Now, God gives a commandment through his law to Israel to be a holy nation, to be separate, separated to him, and to not take in the syncretistic worship of these false deities around them that involve all sorts of inhumane things, but to purely worship the one true God who is good. And the worship of this God leads to the flourishing of human life, not all of the sort of inhumane things that we find in ancient Near Eastern worship and Canaanite worship. And so God wants to establish a safe and clear spiritual space for the worship of the one true God in a spiritually toxic world. So he tells them to return to this land that he had promised to Abraham and clear the land and be a holy nation to represent who I am to the entire world, okay? That's their purpose. They fail in this time and time again. They actually pine to go back to Egypt 
often claiming that life in Egypt, even in slavery, was, hard, was easier than what they had now. And they often just simply uh, flouted God's desires for them. God's goodness and power had been clearly seen, but in their fear and in their sinfulness, they just opted for other things and they continue to worship false gods. God allows them to wander in the books of Leviticus to Deuteronomy for a full generation until everyone dies off. Moses himself dies on the top of Mount Nebo, looking into the promised land, but never enters himself. And then God gives Joshua Moses' successor, the command to take Israel across the Jordan River into this promised land to clear out the promised land and establish this holy nation. And so we encounter that happening. Joshua in the conquest period happens. And then we enter into the time of the judges. God is the king of Israel. They are 12 tribes. Each of them has a parcel of land. And God governs this country. And it is the job of the priests and the judges to represent God rightly. The priests have God's law. They're supposed to teach the law. They're supposed to do the the temple and sacrificial rituals. And the judges are to guide the nation against external threats, against these uh, pagan nations that want to destroy Israel. Well, the judges and the priests, in the time of the judges, we find sort of spiral into um, continued corruption it's, it's pretty ugly. The people become wayward. The tribes are just a loose confederation. They're not really a holy nation that represents God at all. In the time of the judges, we encounter Hannah. Hannah desperately wants to have a child. And she cries out to God. And in her cries, she sings a beautiful song. And she mentions two things that are really important in this beautiful song. She says, first, God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. This is an important theme that is going to, we're going to see many times in the life of David. And then secondly, she says that God will send a savior to Israel, the Messiah, who will lead Israel into righteousness. And so she sings this beautiful song and eventually becomes pregnant and gives birth to Samuel. And Samuel himself becomes a prophet and judge in Israel. Now, during this time, something really interesting happens. The Philistines rise to power. The Philistines were a very militant culture. They were probably descendants, historians think, of a group called the Sea Peoples. Maybe during a time of famine or plague, this is really getting into very early uh, human history. Um, There's some debate about this, but we find something that uh, historians call the Bronze Age Collapse. We find the Mycenaean Greek culture, the great Egyptian empire, the Hittite culture, all seem to collapse simultaneously. It's as if we're getting messages from this ancient world and then suddenly they stop. And it's thought that a group of peoples from the Western Mediterranean swept in during this time and destroyed these cultures and undermined them. This is called the Bronze Age Collapse. The Philistines inhabit the coast of what is present-day Israel. And they're probably descendants of this very militant invading sea peoples. The Philistines rise up against Israel. And at this time, Israel is very wayward. Their their hearts are not uh, close to Yahweh anymore. And so they march out the Ark of the Covenant, this ornate gold box with gold angels on top. Inside the Ark of the Covenant are various artifacts that commemorate 
and with which they identify the covenant that God has made with Israel, the promises that God has made with Israel are all sort of visually encompassed in this ark. And they march out the ark as if it's some magical religious relic to give them automatic victory where their hearts are very far from God. They're not worshiping God really. And in their arrogance, God allows the Philistines to overcome Israel. It's a crushing defeat. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, take it from Israel, and this looks like the end for Israel. They've lost the Ark of the Covenant. The sign of God's presence with them is now taken into the temple of the Philistine god, Dagon. And there it is left before Dagon, as if Dagon is now Lord over Yahweh. Well, what happens in 1 Samuel, we're told, the statue of Dagon falls over and shatters. The priests come in and they realize, oh, this is bad. This is very bad. And then a plague breaks out uh, in Philistia and they realize we need to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So they take the Ark and they put it on the back of a cart and they slap an oxen on the backside and they say, get out of here. An unmanned oxen takes, uh, uh, ox takes the, um, the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And so God wins a victory. Nonetheless, despite the fact that Israel and the army of Israel is not serving him, is not obedient. And in this time of crisis and fear, Israel goes to Samuel and they say to Samuel, give us a king like the other nations. We must have a king like the other nations. We're embarrassed, we don't look like them. These other nations have these great powerful kings and look at us, we're a confederation of tribes. We don't have a royal court. We don't have all of that kingly power and all of that that goes with it. Give us a king like the other nations. And Samuel goes to God and he says, God, they've rejected me and you are having me lead Israel and they don't wanna to listen to me. And God says to Samuel, don't take it personally, Samuel. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. I am their king. They want a human king, let us give them a human king. And so he tells Samuel to go and anoint a king, and he finds Saul. Saul looks the part. We're told that Saul was tall, handsome, very commanding presence. He looks like a king. Israelites would look at someone like Saul and say, that's our king. That's the guy we follow. On the inside, what nobody could see but God is that he was wayward, disobedient, and prideful. And so time after time, although God has given him his presence and empowered him to lead Israel, he flouts God's will. He's disobedient. And God eventually tells Samuel, I'm going to take my spirit away from Saul and I'm going to anoint a new king, a king after my own heart, who will do everything that I desire for him to do. And so remember, God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. So God leads Samuel to Bethlehem, where he meets Jesse. And he asked Jesse, can you bring out your sons? And all of these sons are very impressive figures, kingly like Saul. Today we would say they were total chads. But in, in the ancient world, they said, these guys are total Sauls, one after another, all of these Sauls. And Jesse goes down the line and he says, nope, not you, not you, not you. And he gets to the end and he says to, to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? And Jesse says, oh, well, there's David, the youngest son. He's a shepherd. He's got the lowest position. It's just David. I mean, look at these impressive sons. I mean, do you want to see David? Yeah, I want to see David. And so Jesse brings David to Saul and God tells uh, uh, Samuel, and God tells Samuel, this is the one. And Samuel secretly anoints this boy, David, 
as the king of Israel. Well, in the time that God removes his spirit from Saul, an evil spirit comes to torment Saul and he begins to descend into madness. While he's tormented, the courtesans of his court actually employ David to play music that soothes Saul as he's having these fits of madness. And so David plays music for Saul. And when the Philistines come again to challenge the army of Israel, they insult Yahweh, the God of Israel. David is filled with God's spirit and he's incensed at this. He can't believe what he's hearing. Goliath, this great champion of the Philistines, comes out and challenges any man of Israel who will fight him one-on-one, and everyone's too scared. David, filled with the Spirit of God, trusting God, this young boy, the armor doesn't even fit him, says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who challenges us? Here's what he says in 1 Samuel 17, 36 and 37. He tells Saul, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, what an insult, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. He trusts utterly and fully in God alone. He goes out with just a slingshot, just a few stones. Now, ancient slingers, I think that's what they were called, were actually, this was, these were actually important elements in ancient armies. It seems a little bit of a feeble um, weapon to us today, but these guys were actually very, very accurate. They were very, very good, and they were very, very powerful, you know, to, to um, be accurate with these sorts of projectiles before there were guns like weapons and crossbows and such things. And so David was very, very accurate, but it wasn't his skill that defeated Goliath. It was his trust in the God of Israel. And so David slew Goliath, we know this very famous story, and as David grows, he continues uh, to serve in Saul's court, and as he gets older, Saul um, commissions him as the commander of the army of Israel. In fact, David marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and so he is deeply embedded in the royal family, and as this proceeds, David's fame begins uh, begins to grow, And Saul, descending into madness, becomes increasingly jealous. And so he actually arranges for David to die in battle, but it never works. David is successful time and time again, just like with Goliath, because he trusts God. In 1 Samuel 8, 18, 6, and 7, after a victory of David, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Can you imagine how Saul feels about this? He's already descending into bitter jealousy. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, are very close friends. They make a covenant with one another to support each other, to love each other, to defend each other. Jonathan warns David of Saul's plot to kill him. In fact, Um, At one point, Saul throws a javelin at David, and so David flees from the royal court and becomes a fugitive. He still commands an army of Israel, although Saul's men are now pursuing David foolishly with all of these external threats to Israel. Saul is 
almost single-mindedly focused on just capturing David. David is still defending Israel. He's still doing his job. He deeply respects and loves Saul and loves Jonathan, although Saul is seeking to kill him. David has opportunities to kill Saul, but he trusts God. That is not how David will behave. That is not how David will serve the Lord. God has chosen Saul, and God can give Saul his place and take it away. David will not take that opportunity. And so, while he's a fugitive, he's still defending Israel. Because of Saul's foolishness, he ends up dying in battle along with Jonathan. David hears of this, and he mourns deeply at the death of Saul and Jonathan. The leaders of the southern tribes of Israel now identify and annoy, anoint David as the king of southern Israel. The leaders of the tribes of northern Israel, they uh, anoint Ishbosheth, another son of Saul, as the king of northern Israel. This leads to a civil war. Ishbosheth wants to take southern Israel and goes to war with David. Well, not at David's command, but some assassins who think that they're helping David go and assassinate Ishbosheth. David is very unhappy with this. He convicts the assassins of murder. This is not God's plan. This is not what God wants. God's heart is grieved by the civil wars and the divisions within Israel. Um, they will conquer by trusting God, not with these underhanded, typical ancient political tactics of murder, assassination, and these sorts of things. But with the death of Ishbosheth, David now becomes the king of a united Israel. And this is the high point in the history of Israel. We see Israel rising to this point in 2 Samuel. And from 2 Samuel 7, it's all downhill. The Old Testament is, is a book in which after 2 Samuel 7, we really see things just decline. And it's, um, it, it, it ends not with a happy ending. The Old Testament is going to end with the people of Israel going through a second captivity, just like the captivity in Egypt, now captivity in Babylon, returning under Persian rule to rebuild the temple and God's presence doesn't come. The Old Testament ends. The beginning of the end happens here in 2 Samuel 7. David is the king of all of Israel and he's just riding this wave of success. Psalm 18 Here's something that David says. He, he wrote about half of the Psalms. Um, think of how David is feeling in this moment with all of his success. He says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. I've done everything that God wanted me to do, and now I'm reaping the rewards of that. David is riding the wave of his success. In Psalm 18, we see something of that. And so David then offers to make a temple for God. Until that point, God's presence had been moving with Israel in this mobile tabernacle, this tent where God's presence was. And he says, God, I want to make for you a permanent residence, a temple. And God says, no, you're a man of war. You've got blood on your hands. You won't make for me a temple. I have a better deal for you, David. I'm going to make for you a house. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel verse 7, 12 through 13. This is promise that God makes to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, biblical prophecy often has an immediate and an ultimate fulfillment. This will be immediately fulfilled in David's son Solomon, who will build the temple, but it will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, God is the true king of Israel, and he wants a man after his own heart who will obey him. David is not the true king. We identify David as king. We see David as king. We respect David as king, but ultimately his kingship is derived from God. What God is saying is ultimately there will be a descendant of David who will rule forever, and he will be so obedient that everything that he says is what God says without deviation. Everything that he does is what God does. In fact, he won't just be godly, he will be God. He will be simultaneously the son of David and the son of God. Sounds like science fiction. But we already have this promise here in 2 Samuel 7, that they will come together. This is an ingenious solution to the issue, to the problem. God reigns, and we have a reign, we have a God, we have rather a king from a descendant of David simultaneously in this future king to come. Solomon didn't reign forever, so this is fulfilled in a, in a future descendant of David. As I said, this is the high point, and it's all downhill from there. The first big devastating event is the army of Israel is away for war. David sees a beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba in Jerusalem. He should have been with his army. He should have been leading. He should have been obedient to God, but he's starting to feel the celebrity of being a king. He's starting to enjoy the comforts of being a king. He stays home in Jerusalem. He sees Bathsheba and he seduces her. She becomes pregnant. To cover it up, he has her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. Horrible deed. Nathan the prophet comes to David and rebukes him, and David immediately repented with great remorse. The child that they conceived died. David mourned, and he trusted God's mercy. And the sins that David had now inaugurated, although God is merciful and just, began to bleed into his family. It's really horrific. Amnon, David's son, sexually assaults Tamar, his own daughter. And in response, Absalom, another one of his sons, kills Amnon. His whole family's disintegrating in front of him. Then Absalom starts a coup drives David out of Jerusalem and begins a civil war. Some assassins, again, not on David's command, but thinking that they're serving David, kill his son Absalom. And David mourns for his son, just like he mourned for Saul. The people who want to kill him and drive him out and usurp his power, he loves. Then another son, Adonijah, attempts a coup. And that fails. David's whole family has disintegrated. And on his deathbed, he calls Solomon the second son that he had with Bathsheba and identifies him as his successor and implores him to not trust in kingly power, to not trust in his own wisdom, but to trust in God. And Solomon becomes a great king in his own right, and his own ark will rise and fall kind of like his father David, kind of like the history of all of Israel. At the end of his life, uh, David is penning a psalm, and we see in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. That's a very different attitude than what we saw in Psalm 18, where he, he almost seems arrogant. Now, that's not to say that Psalm 18 is, is not true. 
is not a psalm of worship to God. He worships God. But you see his attitude. He seems to be riding the wave of his, his own authority, which is derived from God, his own success, which God has given to him. He hasn't entirely forgotten it, but he seems to revel in it a bit. Psalm 51, he's a very different man. So if we understand this about the life of David, he begins as a humble servant, uh, sorry, a humble shepherd, becomes the leader of the army of Israel, the great king of Israel, the greatest of all. And then finally, his life ends in repentance, his family in shambles. And he's still a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he trusts God despite himself from beginning to end. He's learned a number of lessons along the way, and when he dies, the faith of the young shepherd boy has only grown in him, despite all of his mistakes. That um, dichotomy between Psalm 18 and Psalm 51, you know who taught me that? My wife taught me that, the cutest theologian I know. We're talking about David, and I have a PhD in theology, I know these things. She said, have you thought about this? I said, no, wow. Wow, that's amazing, thank you. And so, but it's important for understanding David's life and the arc of his life. So our response, let's close with this. What should we do? Um, Iron sharpens iron, and we're in fellowship with one another. We're going to fellowship through the life of David over the next coming weeks. As we think about these things, as we learn about these things, we talk among one another, do this. Pray for one another. Think in your own life how we can learn to trust God in these ways. Notice this. It's very important. We fail. I don't know about you. I fail systematically. I look back on my life and I think, haven't I learned these lessons? What am I doing? Why did that happen? And I, I'm very upset with myself. I'm disappointed with myself. So many times I want to give up on myself. And we think God must feel the same because there's no helping this. I mean, by now, these lessons should have learned. I, must be in, I, I should be by now in a much different place. My holiness is not what it should be. My nearness to Christ is not what it should be. My interactions with others are not what they should be. We want to give up on ourselves. David is a man who failed tremendously, tremendously. He is not a hero. But one thing he never did was give up hoping in God's goodness and mercy. He never gave up knowing God's love and God's goodness in his life. He knew it even more keenly and incisely because of his own failures. We tend to think that our failures nullify that. Nonsense, nonsense. You don't know God's goodness and mercy if you think that your failures somehow nullify God's purposes and love for you. And so we want to develop that sort of faith. And then secondly, a great thing that David did is he accepted the criticisms of his counselors and he immediately confessed. He didn't fight, he didn't justify, he didn't give explanations. He didn't turn the tables and counter the accusation. He didn't threaten the lives of the prophets. He received the criticisms of his counselors, he confessed and he repented and threw himself on God's mercy. We don't live in a society like that. We live in a society where we justify ourselves. The apologies that we give are very weak, you know, very scripted. But we don't really trust counselors. Okay, it's important to know who the counselors are in our lives. It's not everybody. Not just anybody can come up to you and correct your life. There's a lot of people who want to do that. They're not all invited or equipped to do so. But there are some counselors in your life. For example, if you're married, that's not by accident, right? That other person, whether you believe it or not, is often the mouthpiece of God in your life. And you think, 
there's such intimacy, there's been trials in our relationship, I don't necessarily trust. Uh, I understand. Uh, but that person is often God's mouthpiece uh, in our life. But we have a whole group of counselors in our lives. If you are a member of this church, that's not by accident. There are people here with whom you're in fellowship, you have friendship in Jesus Christ. That means filled with the same spirit, you can advise one another, care for one another. We have pastors. I have valuable pastors in my life who help me understand things and counsel me, tell me things sometimes that I don't want to hear. In this group of counselors, we sometimes identify a unified voice, and we should respond like David. Don't be resistant to this stuff. Don't be resistant. Be willing to confess and receive God's correction in our lives because it's, it's entirely vital. And despite your failures, you're a man or a woman after God's own heart because you're being transformed. You're hearing God. Unlike Saul, he, he, both Saul and David sinned. The difference is David confessed and threw himself on God's mercy. And Saul stood like this stoically. And so God humbled the proud and exalted the humble.